Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Welcome back to Radio Rounds, everybody. My name is John Corker. We're very excited to be back on the air with all of you. We've expanded our partnerships, solidified for the future, revamped our website, and of course, we've got another stellar lineup of stories to share with you this season, all from the perspective of tomorrow's doctors. Welcome to Radio Rounds. This week's special guest is Dr. Don Berwick. Dr. Berwick is an expert in the field of healthcare quality and improvement. From July 2010 through December 2011, Dr. Berwick was the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Before his time at CMS, as a Harvard pediatrician by training, he founded and led the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and served in leadership roles in the United States Preventative Services Task Force and the Institute of Medicine. The interview was conducted by fourth-year medical student Lakshman Swamy. He was joined on the interview by longtime friend of Radio Rounds, Dan Henderson, a first-year resident in internal medicine at Columbia University Hospital in New York City. Dan kicks off the interview by asking Dr. Berwick to explain the origins of the IHI and the great movement of quality improvement in healthcare across the country. So Dr. Berwick, sometime in the 80s, I think it was, you started what is now the Institute for Healthcare Improvement you guys have done a lot at the IHI to make healthcare better. And I'm wondering, what did quality look like in healthcare back when you started that organization? The organization comes out of a series of accidents as serendipity created IHI. At that time, this is the early 1980s, I was in charge of quality assurance in a large health maintenance organization. I'd been a health services researcher by background. I'd done a lot of teaching and learning about evaluation of clinical practices. And so I was asked to just study the level of performance in an HMO, the Harvard Community Health Plan. And it was okay, you know, no, nothing, nothing, no alarms going off. But I, I got frustrated by how stable the quality appeared. And I was one of probably, I don't know, eight or ten people around the country in similar positions trying to understand how performance in healthcare. That was all researchy. I mean, we were just wonks doing this. But we found each other, read, read books together, started a sort of journal club and got interested in it. At that time, in the healthcare dynamic, that was a, a, at best a fringe activity. Quality wasn't something people were talking about in the 1980s or 70s. They were talking about access and about managed care and about barriers to care, but not, not quality. It wasn't, wasn't talked about. But, but we, the group of friends that started IHI, were very, very interested in it. And the more we looked, the more we found. We, we found things were going wrong, and we found most interestingly that there were other industries that had invested for decades in figuring out how to make things get better using modern approaches to improvement and um, we weren't using them in healthcare so we the IHI began with a research project to see could you take quality improvement quality management methods from other industries manufacturing and apply them in hospitals and the answer was yes you could I mean it was an extraordinarily positive set of initial investigations but we were we were on the fringe. There wasn't anything central about quality in those days. So it's interesting to hear about kind of borrowing ideas from other industries. Why do you think it took so long for healthcare professionals to kind of wake up to, I don't know if this is maybe airlines or car manufacturing, what was the secret to um, keeping those ideas out and then getting them in? There's a lot of sociology behind this. I think healthcare comes 
happily from a tradition of professionalism. You know, we're, we're, we're professionals. We, and what does that mean? A professional, uh, there's a famous sociologist, Elliot Friedson at Columbia, who, who um, wrote in a book called Profession of Medicine, and he, he defines a profession. He says a profession is a work group that reserves to itself the right to judge the quality of what it does. That's one of the definitions of professions. It does that in return for social trust and for a kind of a philanthropic view of its own work. In a different era when, uh, you know, we're kind of all in it together and accountability is an issue and the patient or the family wants control, that dynamic shifts. And it's, in, it's not like we have the right to judge the quality of our own work. We do this together with the people we help. That's a transition of thinking. It means you, you kind of turn to the patient you say, how am I doing? Am I meeting your needs? Uh, what would you like to be different? Ask the family that. Put yourself in their shoes and, and, and begin to see uh, healthcare as a, a shared enterprise at its very core. The other big difference is what my mentor and friend Paul Batalden calls process-mindedness. When I was trained in medicine as a medical student and intern, resident, I was kind of taught the buck stops with me. If, it, if I haven't do it, done it, it hasn't been done. There's a kind of romance around, I really bear the burden, which is kind of nice. I mean, that's a romantic view, and I think it reflects the duties of profession, but it's wrong technically. When I take care of a kid with a complex illness or a surgeon performs an operation, we're all interdependent. There's a team doing it. Whether we like it or not, we're really depending on each other. And there are processes at work here. How do you get from step A to step B? And it isn't all about me. And that concept that I'm, I'm part of something bigger than myself, that's a really core idea in improvement. And uh, I think now we're, we're seeing, seeing that more. But it wasn't the way I was taught. I, I trained in internal medicine before PEDS. And my first night on, in those days, the first-year resident ran the emergency room overnight. The fellow went to sleep, and it was really scary. I mean, I was in charge, and these very sick people were coming in, and I, I, I remember, um, I've told this story before, but the, the resident, the junior resident, put his hand on my shoulder, and it was midnight. He said, okay, Don, you're going to take over the ED now. I'll be, you know, one phone call away. I'll be over in the Parkman house. The phone's by my bed. If you need me, if it just if you needed to call me, just call, and I'll pick the phone up on the first ring. He said, it hasn't been done in 40 years, but if you need to do it, I'll be there. <laughs> uh, I mean, the idea was heroism. You know, I, I, I was the man, and I knew it was impossible. I knew I was frightened. So, Dr. Berwick, what do you think about the identities of health professionals in the context of wanting to do better but not wanting to seem like the best already? Let me tell you another story which bears on this, okay? So that first night in the ED, there was a woman who came in. She had a stiff neck and high fever. I thought she had meningitis, and I did a spinal tap, and um, she had cloudy spinal fluid. So I admitted her to, to the floor. And uh, in the morning, John, the resident, the same guy that had said, call me if you need me, showed up for, for rounds, and he said, what happened? I said, well, last night I admitted Mrs. Jones. She's up on the floor. She had meningitis. And uh, he said, well, what was the white cell count in the spinal fluid? I said, well, it was cloudy. I don't know the count. It hasn't come back from the lab. And I remember he looked at me. He said, Dr. Berwick, from now on and for the rest of your career, if you have not counted the white cells, they have not been counted. I must admit, for years thereafter, I always put them on the slide and counted myself. It was a shaping experience. So look at what he's talking about. On the one hand, this is about 
you are, as a professional, it's your patient, you are responsible, you may not abrogate responsibility. I think that's exactly right. You know, I'm, every kid is, every patient's the only patient, they used to say to me, and it's my patient, so that's fine. But on the other hand, it's absolutely wrong. I mean, that whole message is, it's all you, it's all about you. Well, that creates a sense of pride and commitment, but also fear and loneliness, because if I haven't done it, it hasn't been done. Now, maybe back in the olden days when I trained, that sort of could be true because there was less technology and less complexity, but not now. I mean, look, when we take care of our patients, we are, whether we like it or not, part of something bigger than ourselves, ourselves, part of a team. And there's good news there. It means that you can get help. The, in IHI, our slogan is never worry alone. That's a really good thing for people to remember, never worry alone. And if we, if we celebrate the interdependency, it's easier, it's more fun, but it's also better care because then you can explore interfaces. So the, I don't really know today how medical students or nursing students or pharmacists are being trained, but I would train them to say, find out who depends on you and who you depend on and explore that interface, build it, celebrate it. Be, 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 willing, be willing to feel smaller than the system you're in and, and then, then optimize the system. That involves new skills. It means you have to understand what systems look like. You have to understand how to act in a respectful way in interdependency and, and inquire authentically. Uh, it, it's, it's not the game of heroism. It's the game of citizenship. And I have to wonder, when you're talking about managing that ED alone, it seems like in one ED, in one night, that model could work. But when you look at all of the emergency departments in the country or the world, every night, that one person trying to hold it together in all those places, it just seems like it can't, it doesn't make sense. I think both are good. It's, it's singles tennis and basketball. They're both great. You celebrate the great volley when you're the sole player. That's you and the patient alone. But the, even more fun is when the team wins and, you know, you get to experience what it's like to pass the ball. And I think the latter really, really matters nowadays. And, and if you study defects in care, they're much more there than in the first. You know, most doctors and nurses are compassionate. They're trying to do the right thing when the door is closed. But, but when, you, when the patient gets hurt or the care doesn't get given or the, the, the treatment is wrong, it's the team failed. The team failed. The handoffs failed. And that means you've got to get expert at that. So you spoke a little to the, the changes that have happened since you started getting involved with improvement work mm-hmm. during your own training and um, even uh, perhaps a little bit as a medical student. So you've described these changes in culture and technology and leadership, and, and I think that it's evident when you go to any hospital website or when you talk to healthcare professionals nowadays that these are, these are buzzwords that are coming up more and more about making things better and addressing safety issues. To me, it seems like people are really buying in now, a lot more than was ever before. But it seems like a lot of the work still needs to be done and needs to be figured out. How do you see that happening right now? I agree with you. People, people are buying in. In fact, uh, the youth are buying in. You know, when I now get a chance to work with medical students, I think they're already there. There's no, there's no sales needed anymore. People know that improvement's possible and that it's going to be about working well together. The, the gaps, maybe they're not within reach of the students now. They're, they're actually uh, more related, I guess I'd say, to business, the business of healthcare. I mean, 
for a century or more, we built a healthcare system, not just in the U.S., worldwide, but especially here, that is highly fragmented. Each separate element has a sort of a job to do that it's handed by the payment environment. Hospitals should be full and make margin by doing stuff to people. Doctors and specialists get, you know, get paid by doing things and, and separately. And so there isn't, we never built a business model, a payment model context in which uh, really focusing on the patient and what's going to happen to him or her over time is, is the object of attention and, and that, that success means the patient does well. No, no, not right now. Success means the machine's running quite a lot. And that traps us all because we then are in a system organized around volume and throughput uh, and not results. I think that's going to change, but it is a massively difficult change for the industry. And, and I, you know, I, I know students are listening to my words right now, and I think if I were in your shoes, I'd say, well, what can I do about that? And the answer is I'm really not sure. You can certainly become part of the professional voice that says, this has got to stop. We need professions to say it's about the patient, it's about outcomes, it's about get the best possible care, not the most possible care. How fast that transition will occur, I don't know. There's so many vested interests. People are making billions and billions of dollars on volume. Good people are making billions and billions of dollars on volume. And, and until that's over, that game's over, and we're more toward the patient as the center, it's, it's going to be a rough ride. Thanks again to our special guest, Dr. Don Berwick, as well as to guest host and friend of the show, Dan Henderson. For more information on the IHI and their important mission, please visit their website at www.ihi.org. As we look ahead to next week, we're very excited to be speaking with Dr. Marshall Wolf, Senior Physician and Professor of Medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts, and one of Harvard Medical School's most esteemed clinical educators, and has trained many of my own personal role models, such as Paul Farmer and Jim Kim of Partners in Health. But Dr. Jeffrey Drazen, Editor-in-Chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, probably puts it best when he says, Dr. Wolf makes medicine fun. Tune in next week to share stories with this very special guest. In the meantime, you can find new podcasts posted to our website every Sunday, as well as a complete list of past episodes for download, and much, much more. Visit us at www.radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team at Radio Rounds via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information and much more at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Providing group disability and life insurance to students and residents through participating educational institutions. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. Radio Rounds is also proudly partnered with the Student Doctor Network online at studentdoctor.net. Is an application to medical school in your future? Learn tips for admission success in the new second edition of the Student Doctor Network Medical School Admissions Guide, available now in paperback and electronic formats through the SDN Bookstore at studentdoctor.net. Please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds or the Wright State University Boonshoff School of Medicine. Have a great week, everyone. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm John Corker, and one day we'll be your doctors. Here come the radio round, round, round. Welcome to Radio Rounds. 